All right, what's going on, everyone? It's Friday, April 8th. You're listening to The Hustle Daily Show. I'm your host, Zachary Crockett, and I'm here with Juliet Bennett-Ryla. Hey. And our special guest today is Jordan DiPietro. Hey, guys. So Jordan is a VP of Marketing here at HubSpot, and he oversees our entire team over here at The Hustle. We're going to do something a little different today. So all three of us come from different media backgrounds. I was at Vox during the 2016 election. Juliet was an editor at LAist and covered pretty much everything in Los Angeles. And Jordan got a start as a finance writer after the 2008 financial crisis and oversaw growth at Motley Fool before taking the reins over here. We've seen a lot of big changes in the media ecosystem over the years. And today we're going to be talking through two of those latest trends, building media companies inside of non-media companies and a convergence that we're seeing between the influencer economy and journalism. There's a lot to unpack there, but before we get into that, I'm going to pass it off to Juliet for a quick look at today's news. Apple is broadcasting sports on Apple TV Plus for the first time today. It's called Friday Night Baseball, and the program includes two MLB games, the New York Mets versus the Washington Nationals, followed by the Houston Astros versus the Los Angeles Angels. Viewers don't need a subscription to watch, but there will be plenty of promotional tie-ins for other Apple products like Apple Music and a trivia game hosted by Siri. In Canada, six terminally ill cancer patients receive man-made psilocybin. That's the psychoactive compound found in magic mushrooms. It's been found to potentially help those facing end-of-life anxiety. Though it's still illegal in Canada, patients can now apply for treatment through Health Canada and receive psilocybin through an approved vendor. Last year, the U.S. faced a shortage of over 80,000 truckers, an all-time high. To try to recruit more to its fleet, Walmart is bumping trucker salaries up to $110,000 for an employee's first year. It's also launched training programs in Texas and Delaware, where it fronts the cost of obtaining a commercial driver's license. That's typically between four dollars and $5,000. Walmart currently has about 12,000 drivers, but the pandemic caused a shift to online orders and thus delivery. All right, let's move into our main topic here. So I've been at The Hustle for almost five years now, and I always imagined us getting acquired by, you know, some big established media brand. But last year, something kind of surprising happened. We got bought by HubSpot. Now, HubSpot is not a traditional media company. They're a B2B software company. And at first, I was a little confused by this move. But there's really a bigger play that's happening across media right now. Companies that haven't traditionally been associated with storytelling or news are building out their own media arms. So Jordan, I want to start with you here. I'm curious to get your take on this as someone who's been in the ring leading this effort at HubSpot, what is the high-level value of this trend we're seeing of non-traditional media companies building out their own media arms? Sure. Great question, Zach. And just to be clear, I've been at HubSpot for about six months, so I can't take too much credit for the acquisition or the shift in strategy. But you know, I think this kind of shift has been kind of happening for the last year or two. And mm-hmm. I think there are two main reasons. I think the first reason kind of has to do with distribution and a little bit of a a shift from traditional kind of inbound marketing companies to be a little bit more of inbound media companies. Mm. And then I think the second reason is there's a a certain element of value arbitrage between SaaS companies and media companies. Mm. So like just to linger on that first point a little bit, can you kind of break down for us what inbound is and how that's kind of being rejiggered now? Sure. So if you think about a company like HubSpot, And HubSpot really is kind of one of the OGs of inbound marketing. And so over the last decade or so, what companies like HubSpot have done really, really well 
is creating content, really, really viable content for future customers, and then finding different ways to get those customers to come to the website or in HubSpot's scenario to come to the blog, right? To consume this content and then hopefully build relationships with HubSpot and hopefully down the line, they become customers. Hmm. So that's kind of in a simple form, the inbound marketing playbook. And now I think what's happening is companies like HubSpot are looking out into the kind of the business ecosystem and they're saying, wow, there are people that are consuming business contents in tons of other places in newsletters like The Hustle and podcasts mm-hmm. via YouTube on all these different sorts of channels. And they want to go after those potential customers as well and start communicating with them where they are in those different channels outside of just kind of the traditional blog channel and maybe the email channel. Right. And on point two, just to clarify the value arbitrage aspect of things a little bit. That sounds fancy. It's not. What I mean by that is, so SaaS companies typically get like somewhere between a 10 and 20 multiple, meaning that typically speaking, a SaaS company will be valued at like 10 or 20 times the revenue. Media companies traditionally are valued at maybe one to three times their revenue multiple. Hmm. So a company like HubSpot can look at a company like The Hustle And as long as they have some degree of confidence that they can monetize their audience, they can pretty much buy those cash flows at a much cheaper rate Mm. and then integrate them into companies. So it's a pretty great strategy, Hmm. at least while these multiples remain so disparate from one another. Yeah, I feel like another thing we were talking about a little earlier is just like, obviously, people hate ads. Ads suck. Advertising is generally not that great of a business model in media. We've seen a lot of media companies struggle with this in the last five, six years. Some have gone out of business or gone bankrupt. There really is also a big value here in having your product move to something that is subscription-based or even something entirely removed from the advertising model altogether. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you mentioned earlier, I spent a little bit more than a decade working at The Motley Fool, and their business model was completely subscription-based. And it's incredible the sort of value that that business model adds. You don't have to recreate the wheel like you do when you are an advertising-based business model. And once you start really kind of leveraging the economies of scale there, you get renewal revenue. And as long as you're offering a really great product and treating your customers well, that renewal revenue is, you know, it really adds up. As you said, the ad-based business models just gets increasingly more and more challenging. You spend all this time working as hard as you can to get people to your website. And then all you do is kind of distract them with a bunch of ads. Right, right. And we've seen tons of people doing this across the spectrum. Salesforce Plus, Shopify Studios, MailChimp, Robinhood has snacks now. Uh, Indie Hackers was acquired by Stripe. This goes far beyond the hustle and HubSpot. This just seems to be a a larger trend that's happening. But Juliet, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this too. You know, you and I come from kind of slightly more traditional media backgrounds. Like what were your initial impressions of building a media company inside of a software company? I was actually looking to leave journalism when I was recruited by HubSpot. Hmm. I was pretty much only interviewing with tech companies or places where I could copyright because the media landscape had gotten so bad. I just felt like I could not live a happy life being a journalist anymore. And a lot of that is some of the things we've talked about. Ad revenue, I don't think is really that lucrative for a lot of places. So the salaries I were looking at were just, they weren't living wages. They were the kind of things where the benefits were pretty poor. And it's like, unless you get like a really good position at like the New York Times or the LA Times or something, you often find yourself in these newsrooms where it's like, the more clicks, the better, right? So if they can have you sit at a desk and write six stories a day without ever moving or leaving your desk or exploring anything, 
that, you know, fast, 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 click, 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 like that's really all they want. And I was just really burned down by that. And I was like, I just want health insurance. That's all I want now. And then in talking with HubSpot about how they had acquired this media product, I was actually pretty attracted to that idea because I knew HubSpot was a sustainable company. I had actually quit LAist right before the Gothamist network sold to DNA Info. And I don't know if anyone followed that story, but basically their newsrooms decided they wanted to unionize. And the guy they sold to was like, yeah, I don't think so. And basically just shut everything right, down. Right. So had I stayed there, I would have gotten a severance package, which is kind of cool, but like I would have been completely out of a job. And with media companies that happens all the time, they buy, they sell, they lay off, they pivot to video. There's no stability there. And I got to a point in my life where I was like, I just want a stable job where I know I'm going to have health insurance and it's not going to get pulled away from me. I do think, you know, a certain brand that's willing to give you the editorial control to tell a good story, to tell an objective story is a really great way to have a product without bombarding people with ads and without resorting to clickbait. I actually really used to love Mel. Oh, yeah. Mel Mag. Yeah. Yeah. It was Dollar Shave Clubs and it had some really great stuff in it. So I think it is possible for a non-media company if they just trust that the media people they're acquiring know what they're doing and let them keep telling their stories the way they're going to tell them. I think it's possible for that to work out and be sustainable and not have to rely on ads or like, you'll never believe what five things happen next type of headlines. (laughs) Wait, Mel Magazine was owned by Dollar Shave Club? Yes. Dollar Shave Club started Mel Magazine and then they stopped and then it was acquired in 2021 by something called Recurrent Ventures, apparently a venture Mm. equity-backed digital media company. Sounds like a classic PE situation. (laughs) Yeah. That's such an interesting example of what we're talking about too, because I came across Mel magazine articles many times, and I never, ever, ever knew that they were associated with Dollar Shave Club. Uh, it was just it seemed to be organic, like good storytelling, good articles, interesting stuff. But I didn't really make the association, which kind of makes me wonder, like, if the association is not made, like, what is the value for the company? I don't know that example as well as you guys, but it's hard to know because the first thing I thought was like, that's awesome. You didn't even know that there was an association, but then to your point, what's the value that they're getting at it? Maybe there was a funnel on the back end and somewhere they were kind of pushing people from different pieces of content to, you know, go look at Dollar Shave Club content. But (laughs) there are some scenarios, like I think with Indie Hackers, Stripes, I think intent behind that acquisition, I think they said something in the PR release, like they're trying to grow the GDP of the internet, which basically Mm -hmm. they're just trying to get more people to build stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think there are times where companies make acquisitions and they have very, very explicit plans on how they're going to monetize the audience and how they're going to build funnels around that audience. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, there are times where companies are pretty much okay with leaving them 100% independent and free. And then I think HubSpot in this situation, you know, we probably land somewhere in the middle and, you know, striking a bounce between the two. Sure. You know, as Juliet alluded to, obviously there are some fears for journalists. I think the biggest one is objectivity, like editorial freedom and potential conflicts of interest, you know, like would a journalist working for Dollar Shave Club be able to write a hit piece on the razor industry. (laughs) Well, maybe they would. But Jordan, like, what is the best case scenario that you see playing out for these types of arrangements? To that point, Zach, when Sam called me maybe six or seven months ago and told me that this kind of position was available and that HubSpot Mm -hmm. was looking for somebody to kind of lead the media team and lead the hustle team. And the first thing that he told me and the first thing that I asked him was, is there editorial freedom? And he was pretty adamant about the fact that nobody has been telling anybody know what to do. There's no censorship. You guys all know Sam. If you listen to My First Million or, or any of Sam's stuff, Sam says exactly what he wants to say when he wants to say it. Right, and, right. and HubSpot has, true to that, 
done a really good job so far, I think, of letting the writers and the creators have editorial objectivity. Mm -hmm. That's definitely first and foremost. I think the other really beneficial thing, and this gets after a little bit of Juliet was saying about just wanting health insurance, is these businesses have such incredible margins, and so they have a lot of capital. And when you have a lot of capital, you can acquire great talent and you can actually pay them really good wages and give them health insurance and maternity leave and paternity leave. And you can do a lot of things that traditional media companies have not done well. Mm -hmm. And so for me, that was also really exciting. I didn't want to spend the next five or 10 years of my career, like, you know, scraping by trying to get writers and creators to come to HubSpot. I wanted this to be a place where people were super psyched to come and work. And so far that's been true. So this kind of leads into the the second major trend that I wanted to touch on today. We're seeing this collision of two worlds, right? We have social media influencers and journalists, and the dividing line between those two worlds is eroding. Younger demographics are, you know, they're on Twitter and Substack. They're following individuals now over traditional brands. You have TikTok influencers who are dispensing news analysis now, many of whom don't have traditional journalism backgrounds memes are being used to break down and explain complex issues. I guess a question to start off here is like, is there something fundamental about us trusting individuals over companies? Like, what is it that is driving our desire to follow individual characters over larger brands? I think it's always more interesting to follow individuals than it is you know, traditionally corporate big brands. I know when I was at The Motley Fool, we sold essentially investment newsletters. We could call those investment newsletters, you know, things about growth stocks or dividend stocks or value stocks. And that sold fine. But the moment that you attached a face and a name to that newsletter and a story about that person and their personality, the response rate would typically quadruple. Hmm. People are just more interested in other people. It's easier to identify with other people. And I think inevitably you end up trusting other people as well. And so I think some of that kind of big shift from corporations and brands and brand advertising to individuals and creators and creator advertising kind of makes sense to me. And it's crazy too. Like you look at some of like the most prestigious established media brands in America and you go on TikTok and like there are individual creators who have more followers than this entire media company that's been around for like, you know, 150 plus years. Yeah. One of the really funny things I was sharing with you guys earlier was something I had read online earlier in the day that said in 2021, the Washington Post announced that it had more than 1 million followers on TikTok. And at the same time, Local Cincinnati news channel WLWT reported that one of its anchors, Megan Mitchell, also hit the 1 million follower milestone. (laughs) A global powerhouse brand and a small city reporter are equally visible on this emerging social platform. And I think that's the endearing part Mm. of the platform and maybe also the freakishly scary part of the platform as well. Julia, what do you think? You're probably a little bit more in the loop on some of the influencers on, on TikTok than I am. I think influencers are, um, like most things, both good and bad, depending on what they're doing. I think social media has given us this amazing ability to see what's happening on the ground. A lot of the time we've seen it with protests, we've seen it with conflicts, where we have people who can just like point their phone out their window and say, hey, this is what's going on here. And we've also been able to give a voice to people who have really unique skill sets. Yesterday on the podcast, we were discussing this forager that we're now all obsessed with, Alexis Nicole. In love Mm -hmm. with. Today, we were discussing her again. And I mean, like, she's somebody who just has amassed a bunch of knowledge about what wild plants you can pick and eat and how to eat them. And she's utterly delightful. But then 
you have like this, I don't know, influencer economy that I started running into when I was doing a lot of reporting, the kind of reporting that's like, hey, here's a new restaurant or hey, here's a new show or, or whatever, where like you would be invited to something to cover it, whether it's a, a new play opening or a new museum or whatever. And there would be journalists there who are very used to being pretty objective about what they're experiencing. And then there are influencers who are very excited about getting free stuff. Hmm. And I find with a lot of that type of influencing, and you'll even see this in blogs that purport to be like tech products or beauty products or whatever, you can't really trust the review because for them, it's like, I give a positive review and then I get more free stuff. I give a positive review and then I get another ticket or uh, my blog gets quoted in the advertising for this movie. So there's like this incentive to always say that you love everything, even if you don't. Mm -hmm. And then for the traditional journalists, that becomes a problem. I just had a friend who was complaining the other day that she'd written an article about something and then had a friend say, oh, but did you like it? And she's like, well, read my article. And she's like, no, but I mean, did you really like it? Because you don't, they don't trust you. They think like, well, of course you're going to say you liked it because you want to get invited back. You want to go to the next thing. And I don't even fault people who want to go to the next thing, because if you're a freelancer, that's how you're meeting editors and connections, especially, you know, after two years of everything being on Zoom. So it's kind of like, you need the social networking. You need to be at the press night of these events, but like you don't want to burn bridges with people. Like it gets very tricky. Yeah. Whereas if you work for like the New York Times, they don't let you take a free press meal. You're going to go there in disguise basically and you're going to pay for it and they're going to reimburse you. And there's never going to be any of that back and forth. Hmm. Yep. I, I think another like kind of potential issue here is that social media influencers live and die by what's hot in, you know, whatever's going on in popular culture. They have to kind of stay on top of things and discuss what's going on, whether it's like Chris Rock getting slapped in the face or the Russia-Ukraine conflict. And a byproduct of that, to stay relevant, we saw during the Russia-Ukraine crisis in the early stages, a lot of influencers on TikTok who maybe were doing cooking videos or something before are suddenly giving dispatches on the Russian-Ukraine conflict And there was a lot of, you know, maybe not intentional, but there was a lot of misinformation in those posts. They would get facts wrong or they would share things that maybe were fake or doctored videos. And this became such a serious problem that the White House actually had to confer with a bunch of TikTok influencers and kind of brief them on what types of news they should probably be covering for the Ukraine crisis. So like you said, Juliet, it's great in the sense that it empowers individual creators, but it also comes with some dangers because news is something that needs to be vetted and controlled Mm -hmm. and it needs trust mechanisms in place. Yeah. And this isn't even that new. I mean, I don't know if you guys remember the Boston bombing, like the internet just decided some guy did it and he absolutely did not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can have those kinds of things where someone just runs with a story and they don't necessarily know that someone allegedly doing something or something allegedly happening is not confirmed news. And and breaking news changes. It changes really fast. You'll see that in, in any sort of like big natural disaster or mass shooting, unfortunately, those types of things that are very newsworthy, very urgent, very every minute counts. And that's where the misinformation comes because somebody can take something and they can run with it and it's not vetted. And, and then you have more power now than ever to spread that to millions of people instantaneously. 
I liked what Zach said, like the trust mechanisms have kind of collapsed. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, that has intersected with companies have so much money and so much capital in order to incentivize people to create content quickly. So like follow the incentives. And then at the same time, like all of the incentives are telling people to post, publish, video, et cetera. And at the same time, all of the trust mechanisms have kind of collapsed. And so it just like when you put those things together, I think you end up getting a lot of content where people are getting it wrong and a lot where people are getting it right too. But uh, Mm -hmm. it is, it's a huge challenge. It always comes down to the incentives. Mm -hmm. And we did previously discuss um, people who use data to verify stuff, which is kind of interesting. Um, Like they're, they're constantly looking at (laughs) satellite images and conferring with each other and like it's comparing timestamps. There's a lot of stuff like that. You just have to be, I think, pretty careful when you're on any sort of blog or, or social media or whatever. Like, can I trust this person? What are other people saying? Like, you just have to be kind of your own detective, your own Snopes. I mean, it just requires so much more work now. Like I was saying, like in the thread earlier with the three of us, it just seems like in order to validate whether or not something is right or wrong or factual, it just requires a lot more work, which maybe I'm just old, but it feels slightly exhausting. <laughs> No, yeah. All right, that's going to do it for us today. Thanks for tuning in to The Hustle Daily Show. We're a proud part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. Our editor is Robert Hartwig, and our executive producer is Darren Clark. If you like what you heard today, we've got a lot more tech and business coverage over at thehustle.co. We'll catch you all next week.